Well, good morning. My name is Nathaniel Timmerman, and it's a joy to be a pastor here at Peace in Otsego. Uh, I want to share with you from God's Word this morning from Luke chapter 15. Uh, we'll be taking a look at verses 11 and following. Take a look, if you would let, wish, with me to Luke chapter 15. You can open your own Bibles up. Here it is. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out as a citizen, to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my fire father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. But you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father, said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's God's word. So we are taking a, a look at some different practices of the Christian life, and today we're taking a look at forgiveness and reconciliation. As we start, I want you to think of somebody who needs to reconcile with you. I'm not asking you to think of somebody with whom you need to be reconciled, but somebody who needs to reconcile with you. Now let me clarify or define what I mean by reconcile so that we're all on the same page. Um, to reconcile means simply to restore a relationship to its proper, healthy, and strong status. Or to restore friendly relations, to cause, uh, to so cause some people to live in harmony. Uh, we, we reconcile relationships, not acquaintances or interactions. Um, the most particular relationship that we would reconcile is family relationships, but we might also reconcile work relationships or close friendships. Uh, we don't usually reconcile, you know, with the person that we run into at the coffee shop and we have an argument about politics. That's not a, 
a relationship that needs to be reconciled. And I've been blessed, I think, in my life that typically uh, with my family and my very close friends, I, I haven't had to reconcile. But I can look back and I think about a couple of people in particular who uh, took advantage of me at different points in the relationship. I warned them or I, I tried to tell them, and my, their friends tried to tell them that they were taking advantage of me and if they kept walking down this track, uh, they would they might very well lose my friendship. Um, I, I invested quite heavily in it, and I feel like they didn't listen. Uh, and so to this day, our relationship stands mostly unreconciled. I feel wronged and abused. Now, in those cases, I'm mostly expecting them, that person, to do something towards me to reconcile or to try to fix this relationship. I'm not thinking so much that that there's much for me to do with them. Uh, and in the same way, I want you to think about what the person that needs to be reconciled with you, what that person might have tried to do to fix the relationship with you. Take a moment and try to list two or three things that they might have done. Because here's the thing, right? We all have ways that we like to be loved. We might expect somebody to ask us for forgiveness, to take specific steps to fix what was wrong, and then maybe you know, to sit down and have a cup of coffee with us or to talk with us, to go out and have a beer, shoot some pool, whatever it is. We have these particular things, but we need to recognize that different people are going to take different steps to reconcile with us. For example, I, I think about the person that uh, I need to be reconciled with, and just a little while ago they reached out to me. They told me, hey, you know, you were here for me when I was going through a really rough patch in life. Uh, and now I want to be here for you as you go through your life. That, I know, was a way, a step that this person was trying to take to get reconciled with me. That's It's not exactly what I was looking for, but from their perspective, that's what they're trying to do to get reconciled with me. So I want you to t think of two or three things that this person maybe has done to try to get reconciled with you. All of this is part of our spiritual boot camp. See, we're learning here a vital practice of the Christian life. We're breaking down old ways of living, and we're learning new ways of living. And part of that new way of living is learning to be reconciled with other people. And here's why this is so vitally important. Take Jesus, for example. Jesus is part of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with that other person, then come and offer your gift. That's from Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. Now, what's Jesus saying there, Matthew chapter 5? He's telling us that this is the inverse of the situation I'm asking you to think of, okay? It's the opposite, I know that. But he's telling us that if we are coming to worship, to love God, uh, and to, to give God our best gifts, and when we come to worship, we realize that somebody we know uh, has, we've wronged them, we've sinned against them, we've offended them, and we've hurt them in some way, then we need to, as quick as possible, we need to leave church. If we're in the middle of the confession of sins and you think of somebody that you have wronged, you ought to stand up and get out of church, go right now, and ask them to forgive you and do whatever it takes to fix the relationship. And when you fix the relationship, then you can come back. Now, if, if God tells us to do that much, when we have wronged somebody else. Think how important it must be 
for him to reconcile somebody else to us and to himself. It's got to be so important. First John chapter 4, 19 and following says basically the same thing. It says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister, whom God has not, whom whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. Again, do you see what this is saying? This is telling us that we can't have health with God in our vertical relationship unless we can have some amount of healthy horizontal relationships. Now, there are plenty of Bible passages that are also going to tell us we need to have healthy vertical relationship, a healthy relationship with God in order to have good relationships with the people around us. This one just emphasizes the opposite point, and that's okay sometimes, that we've got to have decent relationships with the people around us before we're going to have a decent relationship with God. And so here's the today's point. Here's the thing. I want you to get more reconciled with more people around you. That's my hope, is that what God wants for you would become true in your life and that you would get reconciled with more people around you. And I think there's a caveat here from the start. We need to know, even as we look at this very important story of reconciliation, that it doesn't work out perfectly. Even here, as Jesus pictures his Father, there's only 50% of the time that reconciliation actually happens. But that doesn't mean that that we don't give it our very best effort. So here we go. This is uh, the event. The event comes from a time where, uh, where Jesus is telling various religious leaders and undesirable people uh, stories at his house, or at a house. And this story, he starts by saying, there was a man who had two sons. That's helpful. From the very start, we realize that this story is about two sons. A lot of people have imagined this story just to be about one son, but, but this story is about two sons. And both of these sons are lost, so they're going to want to come home. Now, the younger son is lost in a pretty common way. He demands his inheritance. He comes to his father, and he says to him, Dad, give me my share of the inheritance. He wants to be free of his father, but he wants to bring some aspect of the household still with him. Uh, He wants to, to, to be close to that dad. Uh, and yet he, he wants to have his own freedom to do his own thing. And, and I'm sure we know a lot of people who have been lost over the years in this way. We didn't see how it shows up in life. Uh, for example, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said he was lost like this. Uh, when he later on describes his conversion, he says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. And then he says, the prodigal son, he's talking about himself, the prodigal son walked home on his own feet. C.S. Lewis thought of himself as a prodigal son. Now, he, wasn't, he wouldn't be one who was lost in drinking or drugs or sex or something else like that. He probably wasn't lost in the exact same way as this younger son. He was he was lost in his, in his thinking, in his rejection of the events and the stories of Jesus Christ as, as fairy tales. I, I know another man, you know, his name was Canute, great guy, who would have described himself as lost like this younger son, lost with, with drinking and drugs and sex. Maybe we know people lost like that. Another man I know, though, uh, Ted, he was lost. He would have said he was lost with 
scientific materialism. He, he was a biologist and then a technology specialist. And he, he would have said that when he was in those years, looking back, you know, he, he was lost because he, he had no thoughts about God or the truth. And yet this son, this son still wants to come home. And this is the incredible thing, that he's lost, but he wants to come home. Verse 17, he goes on to say, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Now, don't think when the son says these words that he's really repentant, that he's turning around his life. This man is still trying to get his own goals or what he wants. You hear how he says, my father's hired servants have food to spare. What's his goal? He wants to have something to eat and to, to provide for his own life, but he wants to be free of his father's control. And so he is setting himself uh, out. He, he's going to go out on this journey so he can get his goals, but still be free of his father. Some people want to get home by self-discovery. And there's a lot of different ways that we can go on that kind of a journey. We can go on that journey by running through all of the great myths and the stories of history and rejecting the ones that don't seem to fit our life, but, but following the ones that we like. We can, we can do that by buying, by accepting the this, the philosophy, the way of thinking that uh, rejects God and his divine perspective and just relies on ourselves to figure out what is true and good in life. We can do it by experiencing sex and drugs and, uh, and drinking and everything else that would bring us great pleasure. All of these ways are simply ways to come home through our own self-discovery. That's a major way that a lot of people try to come home. But then there's the older brother. Do you know that the older brother is lost too? He's lost too and he, he wants to come home. And I wonder if you've ever seen any of his kind of lostness in life. Listen to what happens to him and what he says. Verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you, dad, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Now that guy doesn't sound lost at first glance. But listen, or but pay attention to what he's saying here. When he says these words, do you know where he is? See, he's outside the house. Even when he is close to home with his father, he is still outside. He's not home yet. He's lost. And he says he's never disobeyed the orders. Any parent knows that as soon as their kid says, Dad, I, I never, ever did that. What, what's going on? They're lying, aren't they? I've, I've never disobeyed your orders. See, this kid is so committed to trying to prove himself right that he can't even admit that he might have made a mistake, that he might be wrong. He's lost, busy trying to prove himself. And you can see that so painfully when he says, All these years I've been slaving for you. Duty, responsibility, that's good. Right, I'm all for, for duty. Uh, sadly, one of the conflicts that we're experiencing as a, as a culture, as a shifting 
generations is the differences in, in kinds of duty. Uh, our older generations tend to feel duty and responsibility towards our institutions and towards uh, the nation as a whole. And so even things like churches are, are very important and we feel duty to them. Uh, I don't feel duty to those things as much. I feel duty to my neighbors, to the people close to me who live right next door to me. That's where I feel duty. But duty is always wrong when it turns into slavery. When, when we're working for our, our parents uh, or our job, and we feel like we're slaves, wow, we've, we've really lost ourselves. We've made our own work our basis for our relationship. That's a, that's a terrible thing to do. This, this, this son is totally lost. And, and you, you probably know people who are lost like this. A lot of them grew up in good, upright, foundational, solid, moral communities. Probably one of the, the strongest examples I heard, it, it struck me when a, a Wells pastor one time said that he was lost growing up like this. His name was James, and I, I won't tell you, but I mean, he said this publicly, so it's no big secret. He said that he was you know, going through high school and college years and, and seminary years. You know, He was the one who was committed to doing what was right, and he expected God to bless him and take care of him because he was doing such a good thing. And it was only when he had to study this text, and he preached it one time, where he said, wow, I, I didn't realize you know, just how lost I was, just how committed I was to using my own life and the work that I did to prove myself to people, but especially the system, my, my father, the wells, as a good person. It was my basis. My own life, my work was a basis to demand that I be blessed and taken care of. I was so lost. I, I, I had totally forgotten the way God treats us, that God only gives his gifts out of grace. That's the other way that, this is the other way that people try to get home. They try to get home through what we might call moral conformity, by, by following the rules. And you see that both of these sons are really, really the same person? Neither of them wants the father just as the father. They both want what the father gives. They, own, they want what the father gives more than who the father simply is. And, and if you, in your life, and in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. If you want what the Father gives continuously, repeatedly, more than who the Father is, then you're probably lost too. Here's a couple of examples to think about yourself. Are your prayers to Him filled with praise? Or are they mostly filled with requests? If your prayers are more filled with requests than praise, you might, you might be wanting who the Father, what the Father gives more than who the Father is. And maybe you're just lost. Because right? if you, if you can't say to the Father, I love you, Father, I praise you, Father, I worship you, Father, I am, I'm your child, I'm your son, and you are just a great Father, 
and I am glad to have this relationship, then are you counting your own work as what gets you in the right spot with him? Or what about this? Are, are your words filled with thanks, with dissatisfaction? It didn't matter whether you were the older son or the younger son in this story. Both of them were dissatisfied and unhappy with what the father gave. And and there's certainly a time and a place to bring our requests and our burdens and our prayers before our father. But if our, our comments, our words are always filled, they're filled more with our burdens than they are with thanks, if we say to ourselves, Hey, I've never disobeyed, and yet my life sucks. Well, then maybe, maybe we're more lost than we realize. What about in your in your personal study of the Word? Do you see God's requests more, or do you see who the Father is? Because if mostly what you see is is what God demands, what He wants and you don't see who he is, then you are certainly focused more on what the Father gives instead of who he is. It's a clear sign that you might be lost. See, everybody is lost and wants to get home somehow. C.S. Lewis put it to us that if we have desires that this world cannot satisfy, then the most plausible and possible explanation is that we were made for another world. Martin Heidegger, a, a German philosopher, he said that everybody has this sense of unheimlich, an, an uncanny feeling about them, that this world is familiar but not quite right, that there is always something wrong with it. And I don't care whether you are the, the rule keeper, the person who has tried to do the right thing your whole life, or you're the one who has wandered off and tried to discover for yourself where you fit in life, everybody is lost in some way. And you still want to get home. That's what the Father does. The Father gives people homes. He gives His Son Homes and, and he does two things to make reconciliation happen. See, first, the, the younger son, he comes to his father and he says, give me my share of the inheritance. Something really interesting happens there. The Greek word that he, he uses when he asks for his share of the inheritance is he says, give me my part of the stuff, the things that exist. He wants the car and the house and the boat or at least his chunk of them. He wants the, the physical things. But when the father turns around and he answers him, you can see here, I, I underlined this word, it, it says that he divided his property among them. And the word he uses for property is the word for life. So it says literally that the father divided his, his life among them. He divided his biological essence among them. And you notice what happens, too, is that the, the father 
he doesn't just give the younger son his chunk. He gives his whole life away to both sons. And that makes what happens at the end of the story really surprising. When you read the end of the story, then you ought to say to yourself, wait a second, something's wrong here. Because the younger son comes home and the father, he takes his ring and his robe and, and his sandals and he says, give them all to my son. And you should read that and you should say to yourself, wait a second here. I thought the father gave away everything he had. He gave away his whole life. He divided up all of his his possessions, but his whole life he gave away to his kids. And there are certainly ways to explain this historically about what might have happened. But the, the point is that the father did not hold anything back from his kids. He didn't just give them his property. He gave them his whole life, everything he had, so that he could welcome his son's home, so that even more importantly, he could give a home and a life to his sons. The father gives his sons a life. That's the way to, to welcome people home, is to give them life, to give them a life where they are, where they're at. There's an incredible cost to that. One of my favorite Wells preachers, points out that what should have happened in this whole story, in this whole event, is that the elder brother should have gone out to find the younger brother. See, what the the younger brother did was incredibly shameful. Uh, In our day and age, if if a kid runs away from home, yeah, it brings disgrace on the family, but it's uh, it's embarrassing and, and we just will stop talking about it, right? We'll push it under the rug. Uh, in, in the ancient world, it would have been so embarrassing that most of the time, one of the brothers, and it should have been the eldest brother, should go out and bring the younger son home. Uh, this is what happens with Esau and Jacob. You know, when Jacob goes off to to get married, and uh, eventually Isaac dies. You see how Jacob or Esau goes out to meet Jacob as he comes home. He goes out to to pick up his brother and bring him back. Uh, and yet the the older brother refuses. He refuses to go out and to get his younger brother. And the thing is, is that there was just way too high of a price to pay. You and I, as people who are lost, we deserve alienation, isolation, rejection. And the point of this parable is that forgiveness and reconciliation, it costs an incredibly high price. Somebody has to pay it. And that should have been the elder brother. The beautiful truth of the the scriptures, the gospel, is that you and I have a true elder brother. That we deserve alienation, isolation, and rejection. And yet the, the Son of God endured isolation and rejection so that we could be welcomed back in the home. Jesus was treated as an outcast so that God could call you and I children and put us in a home. You know, and, and, Jesus was 
rejected by his very own people so that you and I could be accepted. Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice from his Father so that you and I could be forgiven and set free from the wrath of God. There was no way for us to get home except at the expense of the eternal brother, the elder brother, the true elder brother, Jesus Christ. It was on his back to get us back. And that's the amazing and incredible life-changing truth. If you want to experience reconciliation in your own life, if you want to be connected with the people around you, then you need to be moved by the sight of what it costs to bring you home. That's the key difference between you and the person out there who needs to be reconciled with you. The Christian you has seen something that has transformed your heart towards God and the people around you. So you can rest in the Father's love. You don't need to worry at all about whether or not you have a home. You always have a home, and you can you can then freely and f- easily give to the people around you because the, the Son, the true Son, has paid an incredibly high price. Now, I know that true reconciliation it seems almost impossible for us. It costs way too much. And the, the 20th century was a, a, is a testimony to that. Think about World War I and how we tried to bring Germany back onto the, the national scene, the, the global scene. It was a, a failure. We couldn't reconcile Germany back. It cost way too much. And I see this all the time when I disciple couples and families particularly and when the relationship is broken, I will ask them, you know, what will it take for you to trust each other again? You know, people almost never have a a good answer for me because the truth is, is that the cost is way too high for either couple in a relationship or or for any person in a family to pay. The the true cost of reconciliation, it, it costs way too much. Only the Father can bring home the lost. Because only the Father can give everything He has and then give it again and again since the Son has paid the incredibly high price. That's the only way that true reconciliation can happen. So here's what I think that leaves for you and me. The only place we're left with is is to party. See, this week, as I was working through this text and talking about it with people, um, one person and I, we we were talking about who we were in the story. I said, yeah, are you the older brother? No, are are you the, the younger brother? And as we talked about it, we said, you know, who would really love to be, of course, is the father that generous, that kind, that loving. I don't think either of us can claim to be that loving. And as soon as we claim to be, well, we've stopped being them. And we said, you know who we'd really like to be? There's one other person in the story. The people at the party. We'd love to be 
the people at the party. The, the father has given up his own life. The son has paid the incredible price. What is, what is there left for you and I to do except to just party, to celebrate and enjoy the fact that it's all paid for and it's all done? Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, gave a, a great illustration of this. He talks about a young girl who grew up in Traverse City, Michigan. She had a really hard life growing up. She um, got into fights with her parents and then, and then ran away. She went to Detroit, got involved in some uh, a prostitution ring. She went to Detroit because she said to herself, well, if I go to New York City or to California, they'll look for me, but they'll never think of looking for me in Detroit. Uh, after a few years, you know, it started going really badly for her. And she decided she, she thought maybe she'd like to come home. Well, one night she was sitting there sobbing and she said, God, why did I, why did I leave? Pain stabbed at her heart. So she decided to give her parents a phone call. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. Eventually she hung up without, without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she said this, Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. And it took about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during the whole time she started panicking, realizing all of the things that could have gone wrong with her plan. What if her parents were out of town and they just missed the message? You know, what if the connection wasn't clear and, and the, the tape on the answering machine wasn't working well and all her parents heard was, which is what most of our, most of our voicemails give us most of the time anyway, aren't they? And, and she realized that even if, if they did, were home and she got home, they probably wrote her off long ago. Why would they be waiting for her? She had all these thoughts running through her head. Finally, the bus rolled into the station. Its air brakes hissed in protest. And the driver announced over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that has played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters, great-aunts and uncles and cousins, and a, and a great-grandmother, and family and friends. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome home. You and I don't have to pay the price. The son has paid the incredibly high price. The father, the father is willing to give away his entire life so that people can have a home. And the only thing left for you and me is to party. Right? Let's party. Because only the father gives everything he has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, very often when we try to work out the relationships with the people around us, we realize just how high the cost is for us to stay connected. It costs too much pain, too much hurt to our souls. We're going to have to work too hard. We just can't pay it. Sometimes it's so much easier to, to put our, our heads down and to work hard expecting that you will bless us or to run away. We pray that you would 
let us see the, the price, the cost that the Son has paid and how the Father has given to us a home so that we can welcome people into your home. Let's party. For that is what you have asked us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.